Galileo was a man of faith and science. When he peered through that telescope, he saw a universe filled with awe and wonder. Building on the scientific and mathematical work of Johann Kepler, who had actually calculated the orbit of all the planets around the sun, Galileo became a trailblazer in scientific innovation. See, for many people, faith and science are enemies battling one another. They mix together like oil and water. But that claim is a rather recent historic claim. Most of science as we know it was developed by Bible-believing followers of Christ. Think Johann Kepler, the father of modern astronomy. Louis Pasteur, who developed modern biology. Physics by Sir Isaac Newton, who wrote as much about the Bible as he actually did about physics and calculus itself. And even the scientific method developed by Francis Bacon. See, faith and science were friends. And Galileo believed that nature properly observed and the Bible properly interpreted actually spoke with the same voice. God wanted us to get to know him through two sources, special revelation, the Bible, and also general revelation, nature itself. God wanted us to get to know him through nature around us. And that's why Galileo didn't have a problem with God. He actually had a problem with the way the authorities in the day were interpreting a few obscure scriptures. Well, he said a great quote. He said, the Bible teaches us how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. Now, when challenged on that, they began to say, hey, stop using your reason and stop using your intellect. And Galileo said, I do not feel obligated to believe that the same God who bestowed upon us reason and intellect and, and sense would forego its use. Yet he never lost his sense of wonder with God. He said, when I look at the universe around me, mathematics is the language with which God has written the universe. See, that sense of awe and wonder was never lost on him when he looked up into the stars. It reminded him of Psalms 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament declares his handiwork. Day after day they give forth speech, and night after night they pour forth knowledge. Well, today we're going to look at our last trailblazer in Galileo. And like that last song, there's something about looking at the stars that just fills you with awe and wonder. If you remember the first time you did it, maybe it was camping out as a kid. Maybe it was a college trip. Maybe it was a repelling trip. Maybe you got far enough away from the city that the light pollution was gone. And you just felt that sense of awe and wonder. Why is it that there seems to be an obstacle... For us, for our friends, for our family, that 
to be a serious person of faith in God either means you have to take a lobotomy because you have to give up on science or be serious about science, you have to not take faith too seriously. Why is that? And what if I was to tell you that that, in general, is an urban myth that's been propagated for the last almost 100 years? I mean, what if the biggest obstacle to pursuing truth in God for you, for your family, for your kids or grandkids is actually an urban myth that's not even true? Wouldn't it be frustrating? Something that's well-traveled, well-passed. Oh, yeah, yeah, Galileo was pro-science. The church was anti-science. And it saw the beginning of the end. That's how it's always been. What if that whole thing is, in general, a giant urban myth? More than that, what if the two propagators of that urban myth that you've heard, that you've believed, that you've repeated, that you've seen the influence on your family, what if there are two guys in the 1800s who propagated that urban myth who have influenced your thinking and your society's thinking and your family's thinking, and you don't even know who they are. Like, I'd be ticked off at those guys. Like, how can I have been brainwashed by two guys I've never heard of before? Well, we're going to investigate that today. Specifically, I'm looking at Galileo. We're going to look at Galileo's rising star. Like, how did Galileo's name become maybe more well-known than Johann Kepler? We're going to examine his rising star, and then we're going to investigate Jesus' falling star. Like, why did faith become less important the message that the God of the universe fell from heaven to earth and came to dwell among us, that should be pretty exciting and pretty important. Why did that somehow become less important? You see, the book of Psalms says something pretty amazing. The book of Psalms, written by um, people in the Old Testament, were describing this idea that there were two ways that you could discover God. It says the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech. Night unto night reveals knowledge. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. For the Hebrews, the idea of looking through the telescope, or even the microscope for that matter, to look into the heavens, faith could be seen very much through the beauty of discovering God's creation. And so... Whatever telescope you choose to look at, there are ways in which you can look through the telescope or look through the microscope and through science, through the heavens, through the stars, you can actually discover some things about a God who made you and wants to bring meaning and purpose into your life. However, the passage goes on in Psalms 19 and says it's not just what we might call general revelation through nature and science, but also specific revelation. The law of God is perfect as well. God gave the Bible so there would be details that you could discover. The things that you could generally discover in the heavens, there would be more specifics about God's plan, God's love, God's guidance that comes through the law. And the law of God, the faith in God's Bible or in his law, would help convert your soul. Make changes to what you want and what you can't get yourself to want that you know you should. It converts the soul and what you think, what you feel. It puts you in alignment with wisdom, that the simple can become wise, that you can have more joy in your heart as you look through both of these telescopes, both science and faith, both the Bible and nature. So let's examine that together. Let's begin by looking at some of the myths of Galileo that maybe have created these urban myths that have kept us from being able to see God through science and to see that this is equally compatible in your, your journey with God. Our first myth is this. There's a, a real common, well-traveled myth that Galileo was pro-science, battling an anti-science, hostile-to-science church. I right, see that's a very well-traveled statement. So let's investigate that in a few different ways. Number one, if that's true, 
that Galileo trying to bring this idea that the whole universe, uh, the whole solar system revolved around the sun, not everything revolved around the earth. If he was the one person looking through the, the telescope to try and say that, and the church was trying to put him down for that, then why would he have a contemporary at the exact same time, also a person of faith, also an astronomer, also in the Catholic Church, named Johann Kepler, who also was calculating the distances of and the mathematics related to the planets revolving around the sun, and the church didn't persecute him. So if two guys living at the exact same time, and one was, they were both espousing a view that the world, uh, the planets revolved around the sun, one was persecuted and one wasn't, it can't be that the church was anti-science. In fact, the Smithsonian recently dug up some biographies and some notes in the journals of Galileo and tells a very different story. So if you want to dig into the notes of that, I'll give you the summary. Pretty amazing that uh, what the narrative, we'll find out why the narrative and urban legend started 100 years later, 300 years later, but here's what they said in the notes that were found. The reason the church was persecuting Galileo was for two reasons, and it really had nothing to do with the science. They were actually open to the different dialogue on these two views. However, as it always is, it's about money and politics. You see, at the time, the Thirty-Year War was going on, and the Duke of Tuscan would not side with Rome in their battle against France. And so the Pope knew that, and he knew that Galileo was friends with the Duke of Tuscan. So one of the ways he tried to punish this Duke for not getting in, in, on his side to relate this battle is he threw Galileo in prison. It ended up being like a one-day trial. But he, he did that in order to kind of put some pressure on his friend, the Duke of Tuscan, to maybe get the job done. That was one note that came out of this recent uh, discovery from the Smithsonian. But the other one's even more fascinating. <laughs> Galileo came to the Pope and said, Listen, I'd like to present the case for the heliocentric universe as well as the geocentric universe, and I'd like to write a book about it. And the book was called The Dialogue of Competing World Systems. And the church said, That's great. We don't know exactly which one it is. We're trying to make sure that science properly observed and the Bible properly interpreted say the same thing. They aren't conclusive yet. We're open to both views. So the church allowed Galileo to write the book. Does that sound like an, we're not open to it? Well, he starts to write it. And as he wrote it, he created one of his characters named Simplicius, which is like saying a simpleton. And he made the simpleton character <laughs> the Pope. And so he took everything that the Pope's views were about the uh, geocentric universe, and he made the Pope this kind of dunce character that presented those views. Well, when the book came out, the Pope was not particularly happy that rather than a scholarly article that showed both sides of the argument, he instead made the Pope look like an idiot. So these became the real catalyst. It wasn't the church was anti-science, because Johann Kepler, who actually, again, like I said, calculated the, the orbits for the elliptical orbits around the sun, ultimately won the day. Myth number two, and this is where the urban legend comes in. The myth number two is this idea that Galileo was tried and tortured for his science and the church just on and on, recant, recant, recant. The trial lasted like one day and he pretty much, you know, retired in leisure um, after this trial. So where did this idea that church and faith hate each other come from? Where did this urban legend come from? Well, it came from two people. You can do some research on the two of them if you'd like, but uh, one was NYU and the other from, coming from Cornell. Go ahead and put the picture up on the screen. So these two guys, John William Draper and Andrew Dickinson White, and notice the year. Galileo was back in the 1600s. Notice we're now in the 1800s. John William Draper and Andrew Dickinson White from Cornell and uh, Professor of Chemistry, they started writing books. And the books are like the war on religion and the war on science. All oh, these people of faith who take the Bible seriously, they believe that the earth is flat and they don't want women to take medicine when they go through childbirth because of something said in Genesis. These people are so backward and behind. There's always been a war on religion. 
And what's fascinating in that Smithsonian article is they said, as you trace through time, this idea that the war on religion and science versus God and the church versus Galileo, you don't see that in any writings in the 1600s or the 1700s or the 1800s. That narrative begins here in the 1800s with these two guys and their books. And yet that's kind of the, the urban legend that caught on that's created this obstacle for many people of faith that you can't be serious about faith and you can't be serious about the Bible and science because the Bible's always been shutting people down. Because of these two guys that you and I have probably never heard of before that have created that influence that have kept us from discovering some of the incredible truths of finding God through both nature and science as well as the Bible. Myth number three. That's kind of a simple one, but it kind of gives a little background, is that there's a myth that Galileo invented the telescope. Now, he did do some incredible modifications. He was able to see some things related to planets. In fact, he saw the moons going around Jupiter, which is what got him the idea, if moons circle around Jupiter rather than circling around us, maybe we're not the center of the universe. And maybe in the same way they circle around Jupiter, maybe we are a planet that circles around something as well. The guy who actually invented the telescope was a guy named Hans Lippensee, I think. Lipper, Lippershay, there it is, Lippershay, in 1608. He called it the Dutch perspective glass. Now, they made some modifications to that. Here's what's helpful to understand, because I think the narrative is the church has always been about the, the, the Bible teaches that you have to revolve around the earth. That goes back thousands of years. That was Aristotle's view. So Aristotle had taught, and most Western civilization believed, that the world revolved around the earth because of Aristotle. The church was actually wrestling with, was Aristotle right? And as they looked at certain Bible passages and certain scientific principles, they were open to the dialogue, which is why you had, long a hundred years before Galileo, you had Copernicus, right? Copernicus is actually the one who brought in the idea that the earth might be a planet revolving around the sun. And again, you find in Copernicus a Bible-believing, God-loving man. Look what he said. No sure scheme for the movements of the machinery of the world which has been made, built for us by the best and most orderly workmen of all. It is my loving duty to seek the truth in all things insofar as God has granted that to human reason. How could the guy who came up with the idea have not had a problem with God and reason and call God the great workman and see intelligent design and handiwork of a, a God who loves you and makes you all over the place? How could he not have a problem with science and the Bible? And yet the storyline changed 300 years later, 400 years from him. And take Johann Kepler, for example. Again, Johann Kepler also described that he thought you could not only find a God in the universe, he thought he saw the handiwork of the God from the Bible, the Christian Bible in the universe. Here's what he said. I had always prayed to God that if Copernicus had spoken truth, all would come out as it did. I wanted to become a theologian. Now, however, behold, how, f how through my effort, God is being celebrated in astronomy. Accordingly, the sun in the middle of the movables, being itself at rest and nonetheless the source of motion, bears the image of God, the Father, the Creator, for which creation is to God, motion is to the sun. It moreover moves in the fixed stars, just as the Father creates in the sun. He wrote that at age 27. If the founders of science didn't have a problem with science in the Bible, maybe that opens the door for you and I to discover that you don't have to check your brain at the door or have a, you know, kind of scientific lobotomy to take your faith seriously. So what does that mean? Let's come back to that passage. What does it look like for you and I to pursue truth, to pursue God 
to both the Bible and our brains. To not disengage it as we pursue it. What does that look like? Well, again, the heavens declare the glory of God. And look, the piece I left out last time is he mentions the sun. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, rejoicing like a strong man to run its race. It's rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end. And there is no, nothing hidden from its heat. Well, look at that word, it's rising, because that's where the debate began. Oh, if the sun is rising, the earth must be stationary and the earth must rise. That's what the whole debate was about. Taking a little phrase, the rising, and saying, well, maybe the Bible is reinforcing Aristotle. Rather than, maybe it's just observational language. Like, like you and I both know from science that the earth does not, uh, the sun is not revolving around the earth, right? We know that. And yet, how many times have you said to your family or your wife or your kids, hey, let's go see the sun rise. Let's go see the sun set. Do you really believe the sun's setting? Well, it looks like it's setting. So the Bible often uses observational language, just like you and I do. And that wasn't a way to build a whole theology on that. It was just observational language that we still use even today. Now, the sun is pretty critical because God says that despite your language, there's certain things from the sun that can communicate God's warmth, God's design. You know, the specific area of the earth is from the sun. You go 2% farther, 2% closer, and life can't exist because water can't exist. It either freezes or it burns up. But there are ways you can discover just because of the sun who he is. And that is especially true in the story of Helen Keller. Now, maybe you've seen The Miracle Worker before. The miracle worker tells the story of Annie, true story of her working with Helen Keller. And Helen couldn't speak, couldn't hear, couldn't see. And Annie, if you've seen the, the play or you've read the book, unbelievable work she did with Helen Keller, teaching her how to communicate. And over the years as they learned to communicate with this incredible sacrificial gift of love and hospitality and communication... What's often not told, certainly not addressed in the play, is that they eventually have conversations about faith, about God, and about Jesus. Annie was a follower of Jesus. And she taught Helen Keller how to communicate, but eventually got to conversations about God. How in the world she did that, I don't know. But as they began to communicate about God, Helen Keller said, I always knew there was a God. How? She couldn't see, she couldn't hear, she couldn't speak. And she communicated to Annie, because I felt the heat of the sun, I knew there was something bigger than me. You can read that in her, her journal and her autobiography. As she was describing this, Annie began to then describe the God who made the sun, through nature that she's felt, also wrote us a book that said he came to earth and died for us on the cross, and Helen Keller became a follower of Jesus. She first accepted God's revelation or God's revealing of himself through science, the sun. And then God brought someone to her through incredible work through Annie to learn about the other son of God, Jesus. The solar sun and the father sun. See, sometimes in history there have been times the church has interpreted the Bible incorrectly. Taking something like the rising of the sun, observational language, and building a whole doctrine on it. And there's times to go, did we really get that right? There's other times science has got it wrong. You remember before George Washington? Remember how he died? 
We bled him to death. That's what happened to poor George Washington. Because the Bible said in Leviticus that your life is in the blood. You know, blood is a good thing. Your life, the, what gives us life is our blood supply. But the teaching during George Washington's day was called bloodletting. And so if you got sick, <coughs> you had bad blood. And so the belief was that your heart produced all kinds of new blood. And if you were sick, you had bad blood. So they would kind of cut you open and take out a pint of blood. So George is not doing real well. So they took out a pint of blood. And guess what? He did worse. So you know what they did? They took out another pint. And you know what happened? He did worse. His doctors, following the science at the time, bled poor George Washington to death. In that case, they actually would have been better to take the Bible's interpretation that, no, no, life's in the blood. Don't do that. So if you're a thinking person, there's going to be times that you're going to have to wrestle with this stuff. Is that really what the Bible says? What are the different views? I don't agree with that. I want to look into that. What choices do I have? Sometimes you're going to look at the science thing. You know, science has changed a lot over time. Which view of science, you know, is accurate? And, you know, science is changing all the time as we make hypotheses and look into this stuff. So we can pursue God with both our brains and the Bible because all the people, most of the people who established our sciences were that way. Second, let's look together at uh, some of the scientists who've done that. In fact, let's look at Jesus' falling star. The idea that, you know, believing in faith is like a falling idea. It's like not a good idea. But again, if you hear the message of the Bible, which claims to be not a story but history, that the God who made you, the God who created all those stars, made you and burst in and entered into history, he literally fell from earth as a messenger to communicate to us in specifics his love, his care, his concern for us. And that's why in the Psalms, it begins to talk about not just the revelation of God through science, but this idea that the law of God is perfect, that you need these specifics in your life. By putting your faith or confidence in the truth of this, you can bring conversion into your life, change that you're looking for in your life, joy that you're looking for in your life, wisdom you're looking for in your life. And that's not just like these old archaic people who used to believe that they're scientists. Today, there are many, many Bible-believing scientists who hold the same thing. Take this guy, Francis Collins. So this was uh, Barack Obama's um, science administrator. And he was, he is an incredible man of faith. And as Christians have wrestled with the role of science, some Christians believe the earth is billions of years old, and they have found a way that the Bible squares with that to a gap theory interpretation or a day-age theory. And as people who are serious about the Bible and faith, they found some different ways to interpret the Bible to integrate the idea of the earth's billions of years old. There are others who've said, no, 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 the earth is actually much younger than you think, but it was created with the appearance of age, and they found ways to interpret the Bible and science to bring those two worlds together. There's a lot of healthy dialogue in this. Now, Francis Collins is definitely of the world as is uh, billions of years old method, takes the Bible very, very seriously, and describes his journey in untangling the human genome. Like, this is the guy who's in charge of the whole human genome project, who untangled and explained how our DNA work. He said, if you printed out the four-letter code that they found in you, the, the blueprints for a human being, and stacked them up an eight and a half by 11, just printing out the code in one DNA strand would be as tall as the Washington Monument. He saw God's handiwork, God's code. His faith went up as he looked not through the telescope, but the microscope. He also said they found that all human beings are related to mitochondria Adam and mitochondria Eve. Chromosomes X and Y. That there's not many races. We're all one race. Which the Bible's always said. We're all descendants of Adam. 
We may have different cultures and different skin pigment, but we actually all have one blood. Well, the DNA and the support for the Human Genome Project confirmed that very thing. Well, I happened to be talking about this about six months ago at the equipping service, and somebody in our church said, I know Francis. He's a friend of ours. I said, really? So I sent him a copy of my message, and, and I got this book sent to me uh, about two weeks later. And it's got a little note in here as they described our two-service design and our desire to dig into the Bible and help people explore faith. And so I got a nice little note here from Francis about three months ago. For Pastor Chad Hoven, thank you for equipping believers and for welcoming those who are exploring their faith. Blessings, Francis Collins. And I really tried to get him to come to do this message. <laughs> but he said he was too busy. Apparently, he's got a few things going on after being in charge of the Human Genome Project. But he was so excited about what we're doing. He was so excited about our two-service design and the idea that wherever you are in your faith, there's different types of services and experiences for you. Here's a guy who's serious about science who took that seriously. Let's take Francis Bacon. Not Kevin Bacon. <laughs> Francis Bacon, who invented the, the scientific method. Let's just think for a moment about the scientific method. Think about how logical and actually consistent it is with a biblical worldview. Number one, the Bible teaches that there is a rational God who made a rational universe, and though it went awry, it still, in general, can be studied rationally. That's consistent. Rational God made a rational world that can be discovered rationally. So Francis Bacon, as a follower of the God of the Bible, said, well, then we should have some kind of way to study this rational world in a rational way. And through that, we'll be able to discover the, 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 the matrix, the, the mathematics, and the rationality that our God put into our universe. That is very logical. In fact, it's more logical than this. What makes more sense? A rational God made a rational universe that can be studied rationally, or an inir- irrational process of blind random chance created a rational world that could be created rationally. Now, it's certainly possible, but doesn't this seem more plausible and more consistent logically? Well, Kevin Bacon thought it. Kevin Bacon. <laughs> Francis Bacon. I'm going to jump into fruit Footloose here in a second. Um, Francis Bacon thought so. So much so, and also, the Bible says that human beings have a tendency to deceive themselves. So Francis Bacon said, we need a system where you make a hypothesis, you have to test it, and if it's true, it should be true over and over and over again, because human beings have a tendency to deceive themselves. There's got to be a way we can check with the facts to back up to make sure we're interpreting something accurately, not seeing what we want to see. So even the scientific method flows out of that. Now, several years ago, I interviewed a friend up here on stage. His name was uh, Mark Whitaker. Mark Whitaker was an undercover FBI agent um, who exposed the largest price-fixing scheme in history in the corn market. Now, he did that because he was involved in it. And he went home one day and told his wife, she was like, why is there so much stress? And he was part of cornering the largest price-fixing scheme in world history. And she said, honey, I love you. Uh, If you don't go to the FBI, I will call the FBI. So he went to the FBI, and they made him an undercover informant. In fact, Matt Damon played him in that movie. It wasn't a great movie. But uh, the story is incredible. (laughs) Um, so Mark was up here and told his story, and as he told his story, he ended up going undercover for like two and a half years. He had this ugly lamp he carried wherever he went, which had the, micro, the microphone in it that recorded, and they got all the evidence for exposing this thing. He ended up going into prison for several years, despite his helping of the, of the FBI, um, mostly what he would say because of his arrogance. And it was there in prison, he told me, he began to read, as a scientist, that was his background, he began to read the works of Sir Isaac Newton. 
I don't know about you. It's like, Sir Isaac Newton, that's the guy that the apple falls on his head? Like, the guy needs a new PR agent. I mean, that's like all we know about Isaac Newton. He was a genius. Mathematics and algebra and, and, and physics, most of what we know about those trace back to Sir Isaac Newton. But you don't hear much about him like you don't hear much about Johann Kepler because they were people who took their faith seriously. And he said as he began to read about the science of Sir Isaac Newton, he found that Isaac Newton wrote just as much about the Bible, he was obsessed with the book of Daniel and Revelation, as he did about mathematics. So about two years ago when he told me that, I started uh, reading some of the writings of Sir Isaac Newton on the Bible. Pretty amazing stuff. And I read it because I'm a nerd. And I thought it would be interesting to hear Sir Isaac Newton's take on the Bible. And it was. It was pretty amazing. So if you are about seriously taking your faith, it was amazing to see in my friend Mark's life how science led him to the Bible and how through the Bible and some people coming alongside him in his faith, he became the father he always wanted to be, the leader of integrity he always wanted to be, because the Bible began to do exactly what Psalm says. It began to convert his thoughts and his feelings and his will to want the things that he always knew were right. So you can take the Bible seriously and you can take science seriously as you pursue this together. Now we've got to Johann Kepler. I'm going to give a little teaser for what's going to happen next week. So Johann Kepler again, he became obsessed as a man of science trying to interpret something in the Bible that we've all heard about. Because he had figured out the calculations of all the planets, he started reading in Matthew chapter 2 about the wise men in that Bethlehem star. And he was obsessed with trying to figure out what in the world happened in the, in the cosmos that could have possibly been what the wise men saw. Here's the problem he had. Jesus' birth did not actually happen on, on 0 AD BC. We know that. He kind of got misplaced in that spot because he has to live before King Herod. And every scholar you look at today has... King Herod died somewhere between 7 B.C. and 2 B.C. And there's a lot of different views on it. I'll explain them real briefly in a second. So Jesus had to be born before King Herod. So either he was born somewhere between 7 B.C. and 4 B.C. or 3 B.C. or 2 B.C. because King Herod was alive. And King Herod was a massive architect. You can see evidence of him all over the world. Well, because of that... Johann Kepler knew that in those days... He was reading a historian by the name of Josephus Flavius who in his records show that Herod was, died in 4 B.C. So he started looking for any kind of astronomic, astronomical things in the universe that might have been in place a couple years before 4 B.C. He's looking at 6 and 7 B.C. However, recent scholarship has said that there might be a textual error in Josephus Flavius' writing in the scrolls, and it might be that what we interpreted was a 4 B.C. might actually be a 2 B.C. I know this is really nerdy. It's going to be helpful in just a second. And then you can forget it. And the, the cool part's coming. It's going to be worth it. So, so if he was wrong because of the data on Herod's death, you could start looking in something that might happen in the atmosphere in 3 B.C. or 2 B.C. that might have been that star in Bethlehem. So there's many, many views. And I'm going to explain all four views next week at the equipping service. So not this service. We're moving on to Father God series. It's going to be really great. But if you want to really dig deep into what I'm talking about today, I'm going to spend an entire service next Saturday night at 4.30, and next week at 8.50 about the Bethlehem star. But here's a little teaser. So, one of the views is that the Bethlehem star was a convergence of, of Venus and Jupiter, which would have made a lot of sense to the Romans in those days, because Venus was the mother star, and Jupiter was the father star. And, if you've ever seen this before, this is really cool. This is a software app you can download. It's called Starry Night. And in here, you can go into the settings... You can say, I'm going to pick my location, 
and you can choose from a map. You can look at a map of the world and say, okay, well, here's Jerusalem and Bethlehem, and we know that the wise men came from over here in the east, so we're just going to put a dot there. Say, what did the stars look like from that perspective? We hit done. Then we set the date. I've already done that. Uh, Jesus was def- I mean, born in the fall because it was a time when the shepherds were out in their fields. And the harvest time was somewhere between August and October. So we don't know exactly when, but that would have been the time the shepherds were in their fields. So this is 3 B.C. If you look at the top right, 3 B.C., uh, 5 in the morning. This is what the stars would look like if you were looking at it toward Jerusalem uh, coming from the east. Now, what they said when they came to Herod was, we have seen your star in the east. So though they were coming for the east, they saw something in the east that drew them there. So we're looking to the west. Let's turn to the east. And there's what it looked like in the east. Let's zoom in. In the east, at that time in history, Venus and Jupiter were coming together in a very, very bright star. And a bright star actually occurred in a constellation that we know as the constellation Leo, the lion. And often the Hebrews referred to as the Lion of Judah. And in the middle of the constellation Judah, uh, or Leo, there is a star called Regulus. And if you've ever been to like the Regal Theater, you know they've got a crown on top of it, because Regulus means king or crown. So the star we know as Regulus is actually known as the king star, and the king star occurring in the constellation of Leo. And during that time at 3 BC, Jupiter and Venus, there was a star right next to the king star right there in Leo, the constellation Leo. Now, the way the story occurs in the Bible is that they travel for a while and they get there a little bit while later. Well, if you fast forward a year, so let me go forward a year, there's another convergence of these two things a year later. Let me jump forward to 2 BC, apply the settings. At 2 BC, you'll see Jupiter and Venus are aligned again from that eastern perspective, but now they're not, they're below Leo the lion, but now they're converged with Virgo the virgin. A virgin constellation underneath the King Leo constellation. Oh, so that's one of the theories. Now, pretty cool. There's some real strengths to that theory. There's also some weaknesses to that theory that I'm going to talk about uh, next week at our equipping service. There's two other views. I'll give you the two other views real quick. And, and that one guy named Hugh Ross, he's also believed the Earth is billions of years old. And as he looks as an astronomer, he believes it was a reoccurring nova. There are certain kinds of reoccurring novas. You go ahead and put his uh, picture up on the screen if you want. Um, that can occur, and then it can reoccur months later. So I'm going to look at that theory next week as well and see whether or not this reoccurring nova was one of them. But if you're like, hey, I'd like to investigate this. It's kind of fun to kind of see what's true about these different things. You can go to his website, um, reasons.org, Christmas Star. See his explanation for the reoccurring nova. Or a great podcast, I know it sounds kind of crazy, but a great podcast called The Naked Bible, which really like peeling the Bible back. He's got an episode in uh, episode 138, When Was Jesus Born, that fully explains this Venus-Jupiter alignment theory. But here's my point. Christians can disagree on this stuff. In fact, I'm going to give you two more views that might be true next week. But if you want to be serious about your faith and serious about your reason, you don't have to say, well, I guess nothing in the Bible's taken seriously, and I guess I've got to reinterpret science. There's lots of ways that you can pursue the Bible properly interpreted and the creation properly observed in your pursuit of God. And God wants that for you and I. He wants it so you and I can look to the stars and find out what really matters. Because God ultimately created the stars that they would declare the glory or the majesty or the weight or the big picture for you and I. And haven't you had that experience? I know I have. 
we did a staff retreat and a um, exec board retreat several years ago. We went out 32 and we just kept going. We got to the edge of the earth. We fell off and we kept going. And then we got out to Amish country. And I remember just being so far away from light pollution, just that sense of awe and wonder. And you're thinking, wow, i got so many things I'm worried about or stressed about. But you start seeing the stars and you start seeing you're such a small part of a big story and a big canvas. What do you do? You start saying, man, I need to stop sweating the small stuff. Then you look up, you're like, you know what? Compared to this, everything is small stuff. And the heavens declare what really matters. There's a creator and he made you. That you'd have a, a plan and you're on a planet Unique in the known universe that sustains life. That maybe you reflect on what really matters. That if there was a God who made something this big and you're a small part of it, and yet you were so important he would come to earth itself to die for you, what would that mean for you? What might that mean about your meaning and your purpose in life? See, God wants us to seek the stars. I'm not talking about astrology, not about your horoscope. I'm talking about seeking the, the, the maker of the stars. To get a sense of humility and wonder and what really matters. That you can take your faith seriously. Maybe you want to do that. Let me do a closing song about seeking God through the stars. Let me pray for you. Maybe you've always wanted to pursue God and take your faith and reason seriously. And this could be the catalyst to that this morning. Why don't you just bow your heads with me and just say something like this. Say, God, I'm open investigating the truth I'm open to what you want to reveal to me through the telescope and maybe even through the Bible God I want to be open minded and maybe if you're farther than it God I, I want to know what really matters I want to believe that you died for me I want to believe That the maker of the universe would care so much about me. He would come to earth for me. I invite your peace into my life. I invite your forgiveness into my life. And I want you to open my eyes to see you in the world around me. <clears throat> and Father, we ask that you will do that even this morning as we seek you, the maker of the stars. In Jesus' name, amen. I asked, uh, I asked Ryan, that, thank you, I asked Ryan that creates all these atmospheres, these beautiful lighting schemes, does a, a lot of the stage design and uh, created this spirit. I asked him to just leave it here for a second and think about it. What Chad was telling the story about, you know, the first time you get out into the country, I grew up in Cleveland and there were no stars. So you, you get out into the country and you, you suddenly see billions. And you, you, I felt as a kid, I felt so tiny and small. And the way my life has grown and changed and my, with my faith coming into my life, I feel, instead of feeling tiny, I feel surrounded by the light, whether it's the sunlight or the moonlight or the stars all around. And I hope that as we head into this Thanksgiving uh, week and we reach out to family and to community and to friends and, uh, and share that, I hope that we can wrap this light, this love that wraps us from, from our Father into that day into the spirit of, of this week. And uh, we thank you so much for joining us in this series. 
uh, this uh, Trailblazer series. And next week we start a brand new series. So we hope to see you next week and enjoy the light. Thank you.